This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. We'll make a start. As usual, Arias knows what's just about to happen. Um, we're going to open with prayer, and Arias is going to do that for us. Thanks. Father, we gather in the name of your Son. To see, to know, open our eyes like you did Saul of Tarsus, mm. Lord, many days, years ago. Praise Jesus. Amen. Right. Well, um, as usual, I'm going to start with a recap of last week's uh, study, which is on Acts chapter 8. Philip is one of the seven commissioned to serve the community. And he is the central character in this chapter, chapter 8. From verse 4, we see the witness to Jesus carried beyond Jerusalem happening as a consequence of the persecution and scattering of the believers. We know that 20 plus years after the events in chapter 8, Luke and Paul stayed at Philip's house in Caesarea on their way to Jerusalem. Either on this occasion or perhaps subsequently, when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Luke would have had the chance to record Philip's eyewitness account of these events. There had been centuries of division and mistrust between Jews and Samaritans, but they had much in common. And to some people, the Samaritans were considered just another branch of Judaism. What is clear is that their shared history with the Jews and their regard for the Torah meant that it wasn't a great leap to begin to witness to them, particularly since Jesus had set an example in his conversation with a Samaritan woman, as recorded in John 4. One important belief they had in common was the expectation of a Messiah. Philip found that he had a very attentive audience, helped, of course, by the powerful signs of healing and deliverance. But it came with a complication in the person of Simon the Magician. Through his magic, Simon had achieved a following among the Samaritans, but his deeds, for various reasons, just could not compare with the spirit working through Philip. Simon, together with many others, was baptized. But the surprising aspect of this episode is that the Holy Spirit had not come on the believers when they were baptized. The text doesn't make it clear, but we assume this was the primary reason that the apostles, still in Jerusalem, sent Peter and John to join the work. When Peter and John prayed for the new believers, they received the Spirit. As a result, Simon's misguided ambition is revealed, and Peter sharply rebukes him for thinking he can buy the power of the Spirit. Much commentary has been written to explain why this unusual event happened, as well as what we should infer from it. The most plausible explanation is that the withholding of the Spirit was part of God's will, in particular to cause Peter and John to be part of this work. This made it clear that the Jerusalem church was fully behind this move of the Spirit, and that Peter, 
the holder of the keys of the kingdom was involved with this opening of the door to the Samaritans. This prevented any split occurring between the Jerusalem church and the new work amongst the Samaritans. The principle of one spirit and one body was upheld. The second story of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch stands in contrast with this situation in Samaria. It involved an angel, a man whose heart had been prepared such that he was not only reading the key passage in Isaiah, he was seeking help and asking the right questions. Um, I was going to add another paragraph, but I didn't get around to it. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's the uh, summary of uh, Philip's work. And uh, we see that he, he then ended up uh, making his way northwards along the coast and settling in Caesarea. Uh, so now we, uh, we're going to make a start on uh, chapter 9. I'm fairly sure we're not going to finish it this, this evening. Um, it's a well-known story. It's the story of Paul's encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. So I'm going to just give a bit of context, and then we're going to do the usual thing and read around the um, story um, uh, a verse at a time and then look in more detail you know get some feedback and then look in more detail at the what the what the uh, passage what the text brings out for us so this is happening about the mid 30s AD and probably written down by Luke about 25 plus years later when Paul was imprisoned uh, both he was had two imprisonments. One was in Caesarea for two years, and the, and the next one was in Rome, which is how uh, the Book of Acts finishes. Now, what is interesting is that we have three different accounts of this event. We have this one in Acts nine, which is a narrative account in its chronological position, and we have two accounts towards the end of the Book of Acts. Um, one in Acts twenty-two where it's a, uh, uh, a speech by Paul, uh, in other words, his defense to an angry mob on the Temple Mount. And then a few chapters later in chapter 26, again, he gives his testimony or his, this account of his meeting Jesus in his trial in Caesarea before King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, and Governor Festus. So we don't have any other testimonies or accounts of what happened, how other people came to uh, know the Lord Jesus. Uh, I would be quite interested to know, for example, how James, the brother of Jesus, ended up being the leader of the Jerusalem church. Yes. That would be an interesting to find out because kind of the last thing we heard is that you know, he was um, not entirely convinced by his elder brother. So we have this here, we have three accounts of this narrative. Um, now I've mentioned previously that I think the best explanation as to why Luke was leaving out certain things and including other certain things was that because both the Gospel and particularly Acts was written to help with Paul's defence in his trial in Rome. By that I mean 
Actually, Theophilus, who was the recipient of both Luke and Acts, was acting perhaps as Paul's defence counsel. Now, you may not have heard this before. I've, I've uh, talked about it briefly before in these sessions, but it's, it's not something that is widely picked up on, I think. And I find it odd because I find it very satisfying to see how the big and the medium and the small details kind of fit in with this. I mean, clearly, Luke is a historian, and one of the prime uh, exercises of a historian is to obviously get the facts right, but also the wisdom to know what to leave out. They are always selecting what to include, and it says a lot about their perspective and their objective, what they miss out. So uh, I think this is what's going on. So, and I will explain that with respect to why we've got three accounts of Paul's testimony here. So we have the first one, which is naturally in, in its right place. And if this is to be understood as an explanation to back up Paul's trial, what Paul said to the crowd on the Temple Mount in an attempt to prevent a riot is actually a key piece of information. It was actually the thing that precipitated his imprisonment by the Romans. From then on, he was basically in custody for years on end. And the, the other account in chapter 26 is, as I said, Paul's speech to King Agrippa and Festus. And this is effectively in his initial trial hearing. And the defence counsel would want to know in detail and pre with precision what was said in previous trials so that he could be well informed. Uh, I mean, I, I, you don't have to agree with me on this, and I'm not going to fall out with anybody if you do, but I find it quite interesting that it does account for what is included and what isn't included in the writing of the Book of Acts. So, now, uh, that's by, uh, yeah, by way of introduction and context. And so now we're going to turn to reading it, and we will read from verse 1 through to verse 31, but I'm not entirely sure we'll get all the way to the end there, but we will just read that anyway, because that is, that's the natural end of this, uh, this story. So I'll start reading, and we'll go usual way uh, to my left, one verse at a time. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, uh, it came to pass that he drew uh, high, nigh unto Damascus, and suddenly there, sorry, and suddenly there shone wrote about him a light out of heaven. He felt the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to keep against the earth. Arise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul, 
got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into the mountain. And he was three days without seeing, and he neither ate nor drank. Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, the Lord called him in the vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about many that I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Uh, but the Lord said unto him, Go their way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and, and the, the kings and the children of Israel. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has said to me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he, he was with his disciples at Damascus. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the one who revenged those who called upon his name in Jerusalem? And came here for this, that he might bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews of in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he was come to Jerusalem, he was to join himself to the disciples. Uh, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and coming out. And he spoke and disputed against Thomas, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brethren knew it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the Turks throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, 
Right, thank you. Yes, you can see how the uh, Luke puts that final verse at the end as a kind of summary, and there are several of those types of verses through Acts, which is a, one of the ways you can divide them up. Okay, um, I think what we'll do, actually now at this stage, we'll have a look at these other two accounts that we have of the story, of uh, you know, different perspectives. So. Um, One is in Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 4. And uh, we'll do the same again. uh, I'll I'll start the ball rolling and we'll read round. And then we'll move on to Acts chapter 26. So this is verses 4 to 16 we're going to read. Okay. Um, so uh, Paul is saying I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished and it came to pass that as I made my journey and drew nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, So, so, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you? And he said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus. for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard and now why do you wait rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name okay and now let's just turn a few pages on to chapter 26 verses 12 to 20 in this connection i journeyed to damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Fourteen. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice saying unto me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why persecuting me? It is hard for you to keep against the 
Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things that you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you in To open their eyes so that they may pass to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Yeah. Verse 19, sorry. Yeah. 19. 19. 19. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Okay, I think we can stop there. Okay, uh, th there's no need to go on it a bit further, but we're I'm going to reference these other two accounts while, while basically uh, focusing on the chapter 9 passage. Um, now, Vota, you would have noticed that when you were reading that passage, it mentioned about kicking against the goads. Um, it's actually not in the older manuscripts in the passage 9, but someone's lifted it and kind of filled it out from, from the passage we were just reading. Well, it's that's the the new King James fixed the language, but not all of the textual issues. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's not a big deal. It's just that someone thought, well, it would be helpful to copy this sentence, you know, back a bit. Um, it doesn't change the meaning of it. But, uh, um, it's just a curiosity. And uh, as Aaron pointed out early on, the Acts of the Apostles is the the text that has had most changes uh, ha happen to it, mainly they're minor additions and tweaks over time. There are more variants amongst the texts of Acts than any other New Testament book. Um, it's not clear why that is. And, and anyway, most of them are of real, either they're just curiosities or of no real consequence. I mean, like that one, it doesn't really make any massive difference. Uh, the one that I quite like is um, there's an amendation to a, a verse where, about Paul's teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. And the edition says that he rented the hall from, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Basically, while all sensible people are lying down in, in the heat of the sun, he's rented this place and he, and he taught and debated and lectured day in, day out for two years. You know. So many hours a day. I mean, I, I like the detail. It doesn't change anything in my faith, but, <laughs> but yeah. So Acts is like that. It, you, you'll find these things, and it, but it is a curiosity to find that happening in, in that they didn't actually revise that in the, the New King James. Okay. Um, initial impressions, or you know, things that stand out, or maybe you had not noticed before from from this passage, or, or either any of those three passages. In the last passage it says he was spoken to in Hebrew. 
Yes, that's an interesting to pick out. Actually, um, lots of translations will say Aramaic. Um, uh, and it, it's a curiosity, even in... Um, I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version, which tries hard to, be, to do translate words consistently. But this is a word they don't translate consistently. You'll find that in the Gospels it's translated as Aramaic. And elsewhere like this, the same Greek word is translated as Hebrew. And there's a lot of inertia. People think that Jesus' mother tongue was Aramaic. Uh, I'm, I mean, I haven't done the research, but I am persuaded by people who have done the research that actually Jesus' mother tongue would have been Hebrew rather than Aramaic. And he would no doubt converse in both in Aramaic and probably in Greek as well. You know, he was, he lived quite close to a, a uh, Roman Greek-speaking city called Sepphoris, which was being rebuilt at the time of when he was growing up. And it wouldn't surprise me that some of his building work was used in the rebuilding of Sepphoris, you know, kind of four kilometers north of where he lived. Um, and, you know, it helps to speak the lingo in order to get the jobs. So yes, Hebrew, yes, that's um, one of those things that stands out. Actually, one of the reasons I, I'm persuaded uh, that there's a person who's well known to some of the folk around here called Steve Notley. He, was, he worked with Shurash here many years ago and uh, he now lectures in the States in New York. Um, and he has written a book uh, translating the 450 parables from the Mishnah, you know, written by Jewish sages and rabbis. And all of them are in Hebrew, none are in Aramaic. So these are parables dating from roughly minus 200 to plus 200, you know, basically centered around that time that Jesus was living. Uh, and parables were just a characteristic way that the, Jew that the Jewish sages and the rabbis taught. There are other lines of evidence, but I'm not going to talk about that now. Um, one interesting question is, should we use the term conversion for this experience that Paul had? And what does the word conversion imply? You'll find, you know, most commentaries and even the headings. I mean, I've got above chapter nine here, the conversion of Saul. And I'm sure most of you got that. What what are the kind of problems or snags with this word? It's quite amazing. It's the first time we, after all the stuff that we want, the first time we attended one, the study last week, I had this question asked about forced conversion. Uh, and in Saul's case, he had no say in that when he was converted, and the person who was Jewish was not impressed. <laughs> so I have no answer. <laughs> yeah, it's um. No, well, let's get some more feedback, and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll kind of communally have a go at addressing this question. I always think of Jews who come to faith in Yeshua as as completing their faith, rather than they're not converting to Christianity away from Judaism. I mean, that's been a common kind of theme yeah. that people think of. But, and, you know, people will say, I was converted, but, but they're, they're still Jewish. Yeah. And they're just 
they're just full of Jews because yeah. they have the fullness of their faith because they have Yeshua. Yeah. So that's the way I look at it. Yes. Well, as, as somebody who's subject to that kind of um, uh, discussion and appellation, um, conversion has overtones, of course, of conversion yes. of yeah. uh, history down mm. through the ages. Yes. And most, I think, most Messianic Jews nowadays will not use the word conversion. Yes. And I never ever use it. I yeah. will to the Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're, I think we're all behind you on that one. Yeah. Yes, um, well, it, it did happen. I mean, it's yeah. it's not unique to the Christians. For example, during the Hasmonean period, uh, you know, a century or a bit more before the time of Jesus, the Hasmoneans forcibly converted the Edomites and the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And the conversion of the Edomites backfired in a major way through Herod. Mm -hmm. He was the son of an Edomite and uh, not entirely welcome. I mean, you know, impressive characters in some ways, but really not someone you would want to or find easy to live with. Anyway, so uh, one of the, the problems, I mean, I agree with Akia, what she said, that what it implies, and it has a seriously unfortunate history but conversion implies leaving something behind, and that leaving behind cannot be their worship of the God of Israel. Um, I mean, yes, clearly it's true that Paul uh, or Saul had to, had to have a radical change in his attitude and behavior towards the followers of the way. But his his power in his preaching that comes towards the end of the story is fed by his amazing understanding of the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and his relationship with God, and his openness to being, his zeal to want to follow the Lord as correctly revealed. And he, would, he just required a turnaround within the context of Judaism, um, rather than leaving Judaism and becoming a Christian. And what I find interesting is that he never refers to it himself as a conversion. There are two words he uses. Um, he refers to it as a calling and as an appointing. So let's look at those two verses, shall we? Wait. So one is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. I'll, I'll quickly find this one. And can someone else find 1 Timothy 1.12? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone and so on. Yeah, but you, you see the use of the word calling there. Uh, okay, can someone read um, the uh, 1 Timothy 1? Oh, Anthony, yeah, go on. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Yeah, so yeah, that, that clearly relates to the same occasion. So we have these two words, and 1 Timothy 1, Timothy 1, 1 verse 12. 
Well, yeah. they transformed. He was transformed from yeah. Jesus' paper. Yeah. Yeah. I know he did, but, but, but yeah, true, but uh, he could use it, but yeah. it's not necessarily the replacement version. Yeah. Although no, there it is true that Adonai can be is just a term of respect, yeah. and we can't in that his very first response to Jesus, we can't work out whether he's acknowledging it in the sense of an equivalent to uh, the Lord, as we would use it as a, a synonym for God, or whether it's just a term of respect in when he's kind of collapsing on the floor. So, but we'll come to that in the story. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that. He shows tremendous respect yeah. to the one and only. Mm-hmm. He must be very high that he, he called him Adon. Mm. Yeah, he, I mean, he was overcome by the situation. But yes, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at that in detail when we get to that verse. Yes. Um, just a couple of words about Damascus. Damascus was an oasis city, an ancient city, on the trade route from Egypt to the east, going to Mesopotamia. And it was ruled by a governor under the authority of the Nabataean king, Aretas. Um, and actually, Paul mentions this, this guy's name uh, in, in a verse in the end of uh, 2 Corinthians about his escape through the wall, you know, how he was helped. And he, 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 he's mentioned it in the context of his weaknesses. Um, what I find interesting then is that uh, Paul basically had to get out of the region of Eretz, Israel, or it, it happened that he was outside Israel when this revelation occurred to him. And, you know, this event happened. Um, and this is one of the points that uh, Stephen makes in his, uh, his defense of to, to Sanhedrin, that the Lord is not bound to the temple. In fact, the story of the patriarchs is the Lord revealing his will in all sorts of situations outside of the promised land. So anyway, that's um, just to say that Damascus is uh, under the Nabataean king, who, uh, uh, and it's about uh, 135 or 140 miles from Jerusalem, 220 kilometers thereabouts, basically a week's journey by foot. And Paul was almost certainly not riding a horse, despite what you will see in many paintings. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where they get that idea from, but um, yeah. 
and Damascus contained a large Jewish community. You know, we, we have in, this, in the text mention of uh, synagogues, plural. I mean, I don't know how many there were, but there were, there were no doubt several. But more importantly, Josephus records that thousands of Jews in Damascus were killed during the first Jewish revolt. I mean, thousands in, in that one city, uh, you know, killed by the Romans. So that's a bit about Damascus. Um, and let's just take it from verse 1. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul describes his campaign against Christians as a zeal for his type of Pharisaism. So, uh, and I'm going to uh, back that up by another reference if you haven't looked, for, looked at. So this is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Um, so he says, uh, he's talking about his confidence, you know. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he, he expresses his persecution as an aspect of his zeal for the form of Pharisaism that he was following. And just as an aside, one thing I find slightly curious, and maybe Aria, you'll comment on this, is that we know that he was taught by Gamaliel. You know, he, he learned at the feet of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel the Elder, the famous, uh, we would describe, a sage of Israel often spoken of in distinction with Shammah. And so Hillel was generally the more relaxed and generous and, you know, and Shammah was a strict one. And although Paul was tutored at the feet of Gamaliel, his, his zeal to persecute the church seems much more in keeping with the teaching of Shammah, of the school of Shammah where they would take their inspiration from the story of uh, Phineas in the uh, Bale of Peor. You know that story when um, uh, Balak and Balaam, when, when the prophet Balaam prophesies against, or well, is hired to prophesy against Israel and fails to. But then reading between the lines, it seems that he says to King Balak, if you want to defeat the, these Hebrews, you get them to uh, intermarry with your people and God will oppose them. So that was the teaching of Balaam. And then we have this episode with Phineas who uh, then full of zeal for the Lord went out and um, killed someone in their tent who was brazenly kind of bringing a, a foreign wife in. Uh, so, and the Lord um, says through Moses that this was a great thing to do, and he creates a covenant of peace with this descendant of Moses. And so the, the zeal with which he defended 
as it were, the borders of the people of Israel, you know, the, 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 the intermarriage issue, in other words. Yeah, expressed in that way. Um, this is, this, Saul is walking in, the, in this line of understanding. Uh, Arya, do you want to say anything? Well, the society uh, and the religious uh, environment among the Pharisees was undergoing radicalization at this time. Uh, Hillel was not, was two generations earlier and was, and was long gone. Shammai had virtually, his school had taken over the son of Green by this time and were setting the tone that eventually, through its continual radicalization, led to the revolt and explosion and destruction of the city. Paul apparently was on that border and was being swept along in this radicalization process and frankly we see it happening now again in the land of Israel. So we can see and understand how it works. Yeah. And one thing that did happen with the Great Revolt and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was that the uh, party of the Sadducees became a non-entity um, and that it was the Pharisees who then uh, dictated the religious life of Judaism from then on, more or less. What is the major difference between these two sects, Shammai and Hillel? Well, uh, in general terms, Shammai had a stricter interpretation of the law and Hillel had a more relaxed one. And Jesus is asked, for example, to comment on is it okay to divorce your wife for any, other, any reason at all? And this is clearly trying to get him to fall on one side or other of these two schools of thought. But obviously Jesus doesn't do that. He, uh, he has his own thoughts. Someone uh, says Jesus' teaching more tends to be Hillel because he's of humanity. Yes. Yes. Hillel was famous for saying, do to others, don't do to others what you hate yourself. Yes. Shammai was famous for saying, and I, for I, tooth for tooth, literally. Right. Eyes for eyes. Yeah. So, yes, it is easy to see um, uh, commonality between Hillel and what Jesus said. But Jesus, and this is one of the things that really appealed to people about him, that he wasn't referencing other people. He just got it from the source. In this case, he went back to the Genesis story uh, and spoke about divorce in that context. Uh, and that, that was his, his, his authority came from the Holy Spirit within. He didn't need to refer to other people. Anyway, so that, that's an aside to do with the, well, people think that he was crazy, but he wasn't. He was following, as Arie says, that, you know, the trend at the time to be, to be zealous for the uh, boundaries of the definition of the Jewish people to prevent intermarriage. And the, this sect of the Nazarenes was considered an aberration and to be fought at all costs. Jesus foretold this process, I believe, even before his death, when you referred to the tree that his time was green, but that was going to become dry very quickly. It's almost 40 years between the rejection of Jesus and the destruction. There's a, there's a rapid hardening both the rejection of the Lord and hardening of Jewishness into the Zadvizia for the law. Yes. Yeah. And it took three rebellions to cure the Jews of this was not a good thing to do. So, but let's, not, let's not go there. Um, 
we aren't told how many believers died because of Saul, but we can, we can say that it was more than one. I mean, obviously, we have the story of Stephen, but in that passage that, one of the passages we read, so Acts 26, verse 10, he says, um, and I, I did so in Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. When they, plural, were put to death, I cast my vote against them. The high priest at the time was Caiaphas, or possibly John, the son of Annas. Uh, Caiaphas served up to um, 36 AD, which is about, I think, when this story is happening. But Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, makes it clear that the authority wasn't just from the high priest, it was actually from the soul, from the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council of elders. So, as Ari was pointing out, you know, the whole, the 71 elders were basically on the same page as um, uh, Saul, um, with perhaps the exception of Gamaliel, he, he, he chirps up. Um, now, we have here the, the um, phrase, the way, and uh, you notice that? Um, so he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it's the first time that this term is used in Acts. Uh, it's actually used four other times later on. Um, and it, this term has a definite Jewish flavour to it. And, and lots of people really like it. I mean, it's reminiscent of halakha, the Jewish word, which comes from the idea of the way of walking, walking in the Torah, in the laws of the Torah. And they follow different rabbis. Yeah, yeah, yes. There are lots of different, yeah. But it's referring to the new life in Christ as the way is a very Jewish um, uh, way to do it. And though interestingly, which is not a phrase that is so often used, we read in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, that an angel referred to the new life of the community as this life. So when, when Peter and John are released by this angel from prison, the angel says, carry on preaching, you know, and go return to the temple and speak about this life. Which is, again, another lovely way of referring to it. But people are more familiar with this phrase, the way. Now, verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Uh, if you remember from these other two accounts we read, they said it was midday. It doesn't say it in this passage here, but um, that's okay. In other words, when the sun was at its highest and brightest. Um, and it says he was near Damascus, and I think probably what was happening was that he was planning to arrive at Damascus before sundown, Walking under the midday sun was something most people would have avoided if possible. So I think he was just trying, the final leg of the journey, he was trying to push through and get to Damascus. So maybe, you know, 10 miles away or something like that from Damascus, that kind of distance. Maybe just coming down the slopes from Hamon, the, the ridge there. But the passage in Acts 26 that we read says the light was brighter than the sun. So we're talking about the sun at midday and this light shone from heaven and shone around him and his traveling companions. They were all bathed 
in this light that exceeded the light of the sun at midday. And um, who knows of another passage where, I'm just thinking here, actually, maybe not, of Revelation, a passage in Revelation that talks about brighter than the sun at midday. Yes, it's, that's right. It, it's in Revelation chapter 1. It's the revelation of Jesus. Um, so if you want to know what the, what the face of Jesus is like, the face of Jesus in glory, you go outside at midday and stare at the sun. And you think, all right, okay. And you don't do that for very long because it hurts. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so, yes, I was just going to read this um, and his okay verse 16 in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the shun, sun shining in full strength that's the face of Jesus in glory which is what uh, Saul was encountering on this occasion And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh, really, uh, it's kind of simple, really. I think he fell to the ground because of a combination of surprise, fear, and the weight of glory from the presence of the risen Lord. Yes, that's right. And there are a number of other people, prophets in particular, who, you know, when, like, Ezekiel just is flattened by the presence of the word of the Lord, and the Spirit has to pick him up and stand him on his feet. And other people are, and um, in, in Revelation again, uh, John is uh, flattened by the word of the Lord. The presence of God has this power to do it, just to lay people low. So there's really no surprise about that. Do you think this is a moment that Paul say later, the spirit of wisdom and revelation upon me, that I can recognize this is my Lord, who Jehovah, equal to Jesus. Could this be the moment that you see the revelation? Well, he Christ. certainly, okay, I think we can't be detailed about exactly what he realized when. There was clearly a three-day process going along here. Um, and then we'll read about how he ends up preaching just in the, shortly after the things that he says, which will reveal that the point he's come to, in particular, he's, he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll come to that later. Um, but we can't really kind of pick out exactly what happened when. Um, but it was an overwhelming uh, occasion. Now, interestingly, the rabbis and the teachers of Saul's day said uh, God no longer spoke in the way that he did in the days of the prophets, and that they now could only hear an echo of God's voice. They called it the daughter of the voice of God. Saul very quickly realized that they were wrong. He was not hearing an echo of God. He was hearing it just straight, clear, powerful. Basically, le lesson one, don't put God in a box. Don't, you know. 
don't say that the Lord doesn't speak like that anymore. I mean, unusual, yes. And Paul even classes this as a one of the very limited resurrection appearances of Jesus. In other words, the last one where he becomes commissioned as an apostle of the risen Lord. Um, that's how Paul receives this from the Lord. So yes, special in that sense. But this voice from the heavens was referred to the resurrected, ascended Lord, speaking to him from the heavens. Uh, yes, um, we're not. We're not. It's not clear how much he could see because I mean he was he was blinded and he shut his eyes. That time was forty six after Christ, right? No, this was. Um, this I'm saying this is about thirty six after Christ. Yeah. But it is also three years after. Um, yeah, we, I would say within a few years of Jesus' resurrection. So um, we we don't have much certain information to go on with that. So it's just a, a guess. But only a few years, I think. Uh, there are various points within the Book of Acts where we can tie things down to precise dates, but we haven't reached that point yet. Um, now, all three accounts, as we read, Jesus addressed him as Saul, Saul. And this doubling of a person's name is an interesting Bible study to do. Seven people in the scriptures are called by the Lord in that way. And all of these seven people are pivotal moments for them and for many others because of them. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this, but who would like to come up with some of these seven people who are addressed by the Lord with those two names. Abraham, Abraham. Abraham. Sarah, the so this occasion was? Yes, that's right. As he was a, just yes. had the knife ready to go and then says, Abraham, Abraham, just hold it there. Yeah. So that was a very key moment, yes. as we know. Uh, Okay, and the, another one? Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, yes. And graciously the Lord repeated that. Um, but Samuel was the, the last and the greatest of the judges and the first of the prophets. He bridged that and he was, um, everyone from Dan to Beersheba knew that he was a prophet to the Lord. Most of the judges before then were local areas and so he, he was a significant man, and he was the kingmaker. Um, so, yes, that is true. Samuel, Samuel. Another one. Anyone? Okay. Well, I'll leave you to... I'll, I'll tell you the list, okay? And then you can do the Bible study. Um, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Martha, Simon Peter, and last of all, Saul. Seven people. They, and I think it's when you find that these are the only seven people that are addressed in that way by the Lord it's something to just take note of and see what's going on it must have been for Saul on that occasion an overwhelming to suddenly realise that he was not so much persecuting people as he was persecuting God 
And more than that, he had to give an explanation. In other words, answer why. Why are you persecuting me? I think we can, now this is an interesting point, I think we can trace back Paul's understanding and teaching about the church as the body of Christ to this very moment, this moment of revelation on the Damascus Road where he, through persecuting the believers, was persecuted, was, was harming Jesus in heaven. So the body of Christ on earth is the church. I mean, he developed the idea later, but I think we can trace it back just to this occasion. And Saul asked two questions. Who are you, Lord? And then from a later passage, he says, what shall I do, Lord? And these are the two most important questions to ask by anyone who encounters Jesus. Who are you, Lord? And to get that clear. And then, what shall I do? Saul, I think, needed no more of an explanation to his question, who are you, Lord, than I am Jesus. He almost certainly knew his name and reputation. And Saul may even have seen Jesus and met him because they were roughly the same age. And you know, they may have bumped into each other at the festival time within Jerusalem. And uh, this, this isn't just guesswork. We have a, a curious little verse in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let's just turn to that. Two Corinthians five seventeen. I'm just going to read from uh, the verse before. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So we get there the hint that Saul might have known Christ in the flesh. He says. We leave this, these thoughts behind. We're, that's not what we focus on. We focus on the risen Lord, the Lord in glory. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is a heavenly vision he always mentioned in the later. No, I think there were other occasions. Forgets the heavenly vision. Yes, there was one occasion when he's boasting that he's talking about visions and revelations. And I don't think it's this occasion, I think it's another one. I mean, this, and he will say, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And he's talking about then his, the thorn in his flesh. Um, but he says, you know, I once knew a man talking about himself who had these revelations. In. So I think yeah, Paul was blessed with remarkable insights and revelations. He said, you know, I went to the the it's the third heaven where people you just can't you don't have words to describe what's there and what's going on it's just impossible to convey <laughs> so yeah he was blessed but then he was um given that thorn in his flesh to um uh, keep him from getting full of himself and other reasons and the wonderful thing about that episode is that 
Paul accepts it from the hand of the Lord. This, he accepts this chaos in his life and accepts that though he is weak, he is strong because of Jesus. Okay. Nineteen, his, his testimony to the King Agrippas, exactly referred to this whole experience. Twenty-six, nineteen. Yeah. Until you love. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That that heavenly vision. Yeah. Sorry. If that's what you're talking to, then yes, he is talking about clearly this occasion. I was not a disobedient to the heavenly vision, but. Uh, but the instructions were fairly minimal at that time, and we all see, you know, like, go into Damascus and you'll, you know, for more information. Um, and we, we also read, and we already mentioned this thing, in, in that passage in Acts 26, we have this additional phrase where, as well as Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, uh, just to clarify, uh, a goad was a long stick with a sharp point on the end used to guide and control oxen while ploughing, for example. Now, what this statement suggests was that, and Jesus would know this, that there were things in Saul's life that had been getting at him, to use a, an English phrase. In other words, just prodding him or making him turn in certain directions or troubling his conscience or something. So uh, maybe we can come up with some ideas of what we think might have been troubling Paul that Jesus is referring to as these goads that are painful to kick against. Perhaps seeing the um, success or the growth of the new believers in Yeshua yeah. Obviously that was really yeah. I think yes. In his quieter moments, he would have realised, I'm not winning this battle. You know, <laughs> they're popping up all over the place. And they're pretty good folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the signs and wonders were Yeah, we don't know how many of those that he would have witness, I, I'm not sure very many, but he would have had second or third hand reports of them, but he could choose to ignore those. But again, they could Peter. nag at his uh, understanding of was he right to persecute them. Any, any other thoughts? I think there's one that we would all probably agree on, but I don't want to tell you, I want you to tell me. Sorry, Lee? That he battled to see whether they were reading. Yes, that, uh, this was, I think he struggled with it later in his life, and he talks about you know, signing his name in big letters uh, at the end of um, I think just having bad eyesight is not a big problem to bear. Some people think it corresponds to the, the thorn in his side. I don't think it does, really, because bad sight. Yeah, uh, you know, and it wasn't, he wasn't being singled out to have bad eyesight, you know, kind of, <laughs> we, it, it happens to almost all of us, uh, to a greater or lesser extent. 
Um, no, think back to think back in the account of Acts to where Saul's name first appears in the earlier chapters. No, no, no. Sorry, and I'm talking about in the in the account of Acts. So, the stoning of Stephen. He says that he was there. He gave approval to the stoning, and people laid their coats at his feet. And but it was primarily the testimony of Stephen and the way that he ended his days at, under stoning that must have le left a scar in the life of Saul. Um, yeah, uh, Stephen's last cry was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He could have said against him because basically then was him because Saul was the man responsible. And with those words, I think Stephen unlocked a door for Saul just with that, with that forgiveness. I'm sure that would have been one of the goads that was really troubling Saul in his life up to that point. And maybe even he knew of the advice of his former teacher Gamaliel. Uh, and this is written in Acts, also in Acts chapter 5. He says, you know, just be careful about, you know, clamping down who too hard on these guys. Because, you know, there have been people who've risen up, got a following, and then come to nothing. And he says, and if you oppose these, and, and these people are doing the will of the Lord, you will be found to be opposing God. Now, this was, you know... I think a perfectly reasonable bit of wisdom from Gamaliel under the circumstances. In other words, in the context of the Sanhedrin who needed holding back from doing something crazy. Um, and I'm sure Saul would have been aware of that wisdom, of that comment, and he chose to ignore it. Or it didn't correspond to his understanding of what the priorities were. And maybe there were other moments, so maybe this is a harder one maybe to come to, but, you know, Paul speaks about his, in many ways he felt that he, on outwardly he was a perfectly, a, a perfect observer of the Torah and the righteousness that comes that way that he was without fault. But he also, in another place in Romans, talks about, if it wasn't for the Tenth Commandment about do not covet, he wouldn't have realized that and that caused him this was a, an inner thing that he struggled with covetousness and it was the the revelation of the law that caused this sin to blossom in his life and he talks about it troubling him and maybe the if he contrasted himself with these people who are prepared to die for their faith um, and that he didn't really have this assurance of walking in, in the full assurance of forgiveness of the Lord. He, you know, there are aspects of the law that troubled him. And he speaks about that in Romans chapter 7 and other places. But uh, oh, we won't go there. But anyway, chapters, uh, verse 6. But arise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Um, and the thing I like about this is that divine guidance just only reveals the next step. Yeah. 
it's not a kind of not planned all the way down. Just this is the thing you need to do next, and you'll be told what to do. So, and I like also that Jesus is in no hurry. He doesn't. I mean, there must have been lots of things that he would love to convey to him, but this time. And Saul has a lot of thinking and reflecting to do. So, just one instruction: carry on, and you will, you know, you'll be updated when you get to Damascus. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So, this, just to be clear, was not just a vision or a hallucination. These things are not shared by people standing in the same place. <laughs> Hallucinations. Saul's companion heard the sound and were engulfed by the light that came from heaven. And the passage in Acts 22 says, they heard the voice, but they couldn't understand it. But absolutely they heard the voice and they saw the light. And it goes on to say, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And I think this blindness that Saul experiences is a gift from God. Absolutely. It enables him to focus on the meaning and the implications of this life-changing encounter with Jesus. And it's also a, a powerful illustration of his condition up to that time. Blindness. And what a contrast, you know, he's, he's led by the hand into Damascus. And what a contrast with the mode of his intended arrival. Instead of a mighty man with authority and zeal, we see a man who's been overwhelmed, both physically and spiritually, and is led like a child into the city. To go without food in this situation was probably an easy choice for Saul. But to go without water for three days is remarkable. And it shows how seriously he took his predicament. It, it just, nothing was going to get in the way. No seeing of things, no food, no water. Just, he was going to focus on the momentous things that had rocked his life. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So presumably this is happening on the third day. As I said, Jesus is, is in no hurry to sort out this situation. Saul is stewing for a while, as we say, stewing and reflecting and meditating and just head spinning. But maybe things are coming coming into line. No, it's 
Yeah. And, and here we also in these in these verses here in this, um, we have the opening win, willing response of Ananias saying, "Here I am, Lord." It's a picture of submission with clear echoes of Old Testament characters like Abraham and Jacob, Moses and Samuel. You know, here I am, Lord. It's just a lovely response. Uh, we don't know much about Ananias. We don't know whether he was a leader or... I think he's pretty much an ordinary church member. I mean, a, you know, a respected and honoured... That It says we know that much about him. But maybe just an, an, a regular guy, as they say. And he gets his... Um, his moment in history, and um, the Lord speaks to him and instructs him, rise, go to the street called Straight. And uh, it's interesting that the, um, you can go to the street called Straight in Damascus, it's still there. It's an east-west road, in, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty of guides who will tell you exactly where every, every single thing happened there. <laughs> I've not been there myself, but I can I can guess. That's just how it works around here. <laughs> um, and but this this attitude of Ananias contrasts with Paul's I would describe as a kind of bull in a china shop zeal against the believers. You know, crashing around, causing mayhem and havoc and death and destruction. He had to be stopped in his tracks. But here Ananias is completely different. Now, um, I find verse 12 kind of fun. He says, um, that what the Lord says to him, you know, go and find Saul. He, for behold, he is praying. It suggests that what Saul used to do in terms of prayer was basically just going through the motions compared with what was happening now. And verse 12 is amusing because you can say, well, no pressure then, Ananias. You know, he's had this vision and, and someone called Ananias is going to come on and um, lay hands on him and enable him to receive the Spirit. So... Over to you, Ananias. Um, yeah, to receive the sight. Excuse me, in the Old Testament, there is no habit for laying hands, right? Only laying hands on the sacrifices. <coughs> Jesus was the first one to start to illustrate laying hands on all those who were brought to him. And they got healed, they got something like that. Uh, no, I, th so I suspect no. The follow this pattern to lay hands on the hands. Common practice. Common practice. Mm -hmm. But in the Old Testament, there's no name hand, right? Um, I'm wondering whether that situation arose between Elijah and Elisha. Maybe it didn't. No. Um, I'm sure that the the laying of hands would have been around before Jesus. I don't think it's something that he introduced. Um, Yes, I mean, and, but Jesus was different in the way that he blessed the children who came to right. him. Yeah, and that was clearly uh, something that was unexpected that Jesus did. But Arya, do, do you know about this concept of laying on of hands particularly? Yeah, I was actually just thinking about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe, no, yeah, maybe we can look that up. I, I, can't, I can't give you a definite answer with it. But I, I'm, I feel fairly sure that Jesus didn't introduce it in a radical way, that it was part of a convention of, uh, you know, both in the context of healing and maybe in the context of um, uh, conferring authority. Um, and verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I mean, I think this is an honest question. Yes. And it's always welcome. I, I don't think, I wouldn't criticize Ananias for saying this, even though, you know, you can, be, you can guarantee that the Lord is going, when he speaks in a vision like this, he's going to be right. But I don't think the Lord minds people questioning him. For example, when Mary said, when she said that she would have a child, he said, she said, how can this be, for I'm a virgin? And the angel explained it to her. And she said, behold, the bondservant of the Lord. And I think, I mean, this is just my imagination, I think the angel Gabriel went back to heaven and said, Wow, that was easy. <laughs> um, you know, so it, asking questions is okay. And I think in this context, I, I think it's perfectly okay. Um, and the Lord says to Ananias, um, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And it's uh, in, in this verse, I think, I'm just gonna pick off on the word kings here, because you know, this relates to what I said at the beginning of this talk uh, about um, this possibility that this was a defense document for Paul's trial. Kings are mentioned together with Gentiles and the children of Israel. And so when Luke wrote and compiled Acts, Paul had already witnessed before King Agrippa II. So he's witnessing to kings. And if the idea of a de this defense brief is accepted, he is about to stand before Emperor Nero. He has appealed to Caesar. Um, and so we have in here this prophecy by the Lord that he will not only um, be a witness to the Gentiles and the children of Israel, which is clearly that, that marked his life all the way through, but kings as well. And, and he did do that for sure, without doubt. And how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I think this was a progressive revelation. In other words, the Lord would convey progressively to Paul how much he had to suffer for his name. And we've already touched on this idea of a thorn in his flesh that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, and Paul's response is that he accepts it. He doesn't, I mean, he struggles a little bit, but then when the Lord speaks to him about it, he receives it. And it probably really, you know, I think the Lord appointed a demon to just bring chaos into the life of Paul because demons specialize in two things really lies and chaos so this is a chaos demon um, and Paul then just received it from the Lord which must have really hacked off the demon 
because he couldn't go against the, the command of the Lord. He was on duty bringing chaos to the circumstances in which Paul was living. Um, so Paul graciously receives it. And so he ends up the chapter. I'm just going to read the last verse there since I've talked about it. Um, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I think these five things correspond to what I think is the thorn in his flesh. These are the, this is the chaos that is coming from this demon, these things in his circumstances. You know, but he goes on to say, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. So this is a progressive revelation, Jesus telling him that how much he will have to suffer for my name. And the wonderful thing, I think, is that Paul receives it and is victorious over all these circumstances and leads by example in terms of persecution as well as leading by example in terms of uh, knowledge and wisdom and all these other things. That's kind of pre-warning. It said you will suffer, mm. but I've already prepared you. You've already got the experience yeah. to suffer. So I think when he goes through the suffering, it's not unexpected. He knows mm. why it's happening. Yeah, yeah, and it's and and it's yeah. God, in a sense, is upfront about it, but not maybe about the details. Yes. So I think we'll just can we carry on for five minutes more, and then I just want to wrap up the, to do with uh, the next two verses, and then we'll we'll um, call it a day. Uh, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him he said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened now yeah the thing that really strikes me about this is that We've got a blind man, and we've got an ordinary guy comes in, and the, the physical touch of Ananias on a blind man, and his words of grace as a servant of the Lord, and the power of the Holy Spirit combined to make this an unforgettable moment for Paul. And the words of grace were, Brother Saul. Two amazingly powerful words under the circumstances. And the restoring of his physical sight parallels the granting of spiritual light. And obviously strengthened physically and spiritually, he very soon becomes a force to be reckoned with. Well, I think we're going to have to stop it there. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, David's going to pick up, David Plague is going to pick up the uh, story and carry on, and I'll give him my notes um, for the rest of the chapter and maybe on, onwards. I mean, he, uh, David could probably add all sorts of, you know, nice little anecdotes to this story as well, but that's fine. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem 
by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.